1981, I left a job in the business world in New York City to become a full-time volunteer at Covenant House. Covenant House was a shelter for homeless and runaway teens in Times Square. Kids at Covenant House were from the most poverty-stricken sections of New York City. They were almost all African-American and Hispanic kids. A lot of them had been in foster care their whole lives. They'd been removed from their families for abuse and neglect years earlier. They'd spent many years in all kinds of different foster homes, group homes, and institutions. A lot of them had arrest records already. In other words, they were the opposite of me. First of all, I'm Caucasian. I'm from an upper middle class family in the suburbs, a nice family. We belonged to tennis clubs. We went on nice vacations. I had uh, nothing in common with the kids at Covenant House, but that didn't deter me. They put me on a floor to work with about 40 teenage boys, and frankly, I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, I and the other counselors there would help them look for work. We'd help them look for housing. It was a pretty impossible task, but again, that didn't matter to me. I was 23. I was willing to learn. I wanted to help. One of the first kids I met at Covenant House was somebody named Tony. He was 19, so he was only like four years younger than me. And he was pretty typical of the kids there. He was African-American, from Harlem, spent his whole life in foster homes, group homes, various institutions. Then he became homeless and found his way to Covenant House. Now, I don't know why, but he and I hit it off right away. There was something about him that I liked. Even though I knew, I knew he was into bad stuff. I knew he was into crime. I guessed he was into drug dealing. In fact, I remember a seasoned, experienced counselor at Covenant House pulling me aside one day and saying, listen, this guy Tony is a rough character. You know that, right? Now, that was saying something because all the kids at Covenant House were rough characters. But he stood out. And I remember saying to her, yeah... I know, I know, but there's something about him that I really like. After about two months at Covenant House, I came in one day and I was told that Tony was gone. He'd been permanently banned from Covenant House. That he'd come in the night before and he was blasted out of his mind. He was high on a street drug called Angel Dust. That was the hot drug back then. Completely out of his mind, flipping over furniture, causing all kinds of havoc, and that he could no longer return. And my reaction was... That's too bad. I thought he was a good kid with some potential, but, you know, the administrators at Covenant House, you know, have, had to do what they had to do. So uh, I just thought, well, that's probably the last time I'll ever see Tony. I was wrong. A couple of months later, I was walking through Times Square on my way to Covenant House. Now, you have to understand, Times Square back then, in 1981, was not like it is now. Now Times Square is like Disney, the Hard Rock Cafe, it's really nice, it's fun. Times Square back then was the center of the prostitution and pornography industry for New York City. It was violent, it was dangerous, the streets were lined with strip clubs, porn theaters, places where you could buy weapons... Prostitutes would walk up and down openly on the sidewalk. It was a really rough and nasty place. And you would frequently hear guys standing in front of strip clubs trying to get people to come inside. And they'd be yelling out, girls, 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 come on inside and see the pretty girls. Girls, girls, girls. You would hear this all the time. At first, I was alarmed by this, never <laughs> having experienced this in my life. After a while... I became so used to it, it was like background noise. It was like the noise of traffic. 
So this one day, I'm walking in Times Square, and I hear this, girls, 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 and whoever's saying it pushes a brochure for the strip club into my hand, and I look up, and it's Tony. And our eyes locked, and he just looked mortified. He was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for him. He immediately tried to hide the brochures. He tucked the brochures behind his back, and he tried to hide them like this isn't what he was doing. And I said, uh, hi, Tony. And he tried to act like nothing was unusual. He said, oh, hi, Mark. How are you? You know, how's everybody at Covenant House? And I said, okay. And everybody's okay. And then he started naming the different people we knew there. He was like, how's Dudley? How's Patty? I said, they're all okay. You know, I'll tell them that you said hi. And he said, that'd be great. That'd be great, Mark. Thanks for doing that. And I, I said, well, you, you, you take care, Tony. You take care of yourself. And he said, I will. And I walked away. And as I walked away, again, I could hear him in the distance. Girls, 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 come on in and see the pretty girls. So I figured that would be the last time that I ever saw Tony. I would be wrong again. Five years later, now by now I've left Covenant House. I'm in graduate school at New York University. And I'm at a fundraiser in Greenwich Village for a soup kitchen. And I'm talking with a good friend of mine who had also been a volunteer at Covenant House. His name was Jerry Stolman. And we hear the booming voice of this Jesuit priest we knew yelling over the whole crowd of people, anyone here know Tony? And he says his last name. So Jerry and I looked at each other because we both knew him. And we yelled back across the room, yes, we know him. So this priest walks over and he says, I'm a prison chaplain at Rikers Island, the big jail for New York City. And I met Tony and he said he, he used to live at Covenant House, but he has no family to come and visit him. And it'd be great if someone from Covenant House could come to visit him. Now, keep in mind, there are 15,000 prisoners at any one time at Rikers Island. The fact that this priest even met him is rather incredible. And then that he'd be at this fundraiser and yell out his name, and Jerry and I would be in earshot of that and hear that is really incredible. So Jerry and I said, sure, we'll go see him. So the following Saturday, we drove to Rikers Island. Uh, driving to Rikers is easy. Getting inside is like several hours of all kinds of checks and background checks and waiting and finger. It takes forever to get in there. Finally, we get into this waiting room, the visiting room. It's cavernous. Hundreds of prisoners in there waiting or seeing family members. We're sitting there waiting for Tony. Now, I, highly, I know they didn't tell him Mark Redman and Jerry Stillman are out there waiting for you. I know they told him there's two people out there waiting for you. So Tony walks and we finally see him come through the door walking and you can see this look on his face. He's wandering around. He doesn't even know who he's looking for. Finally, he recognizes Jerry and I and he's just like astounded. He's just thrilled to see us. He can't believe it after all these years. So he comes over. I don't think we hug because you're not allowed to hug. Uh, but he sat with us and we talked. And we had an hour, and I think the first half hour of that, we just kind of laughed and joked. We reminisced about Covenant House and what had happened and who we knew. And, and then finally, one of us, it was either me or Jerry, finally said to him, listen, you know, what are you in here for? What crime did you commit? And he said, I was dealing drugs. I got caught dealing drugs. 
And this I clearly remember. I asked him, I said, how many of, of you are in here for, because of drugs? And Tony turned around and he looked across the whole room and he said, we're all in here because of drugs. I'll never forget that. Soon the hour was up. And I said, listen, what happens to you after you leave Rikers, you know? And he said, I'm probably going upstate to one of the big prisons. I'm probably going to get a sentence of three to four years. So I said, listen, before you go, I had a pen. I said, here's my home address, all right? If you write to me, I'll write back. So we said goodbye. And then uh, I got a letter from him a couple of months later. And sure enough, he was in a prison in upstate New York. I actually think it was Danamora, the one up by the Canadian border where those two prisoners escaped recently. I think that's where Tony was placed. And he wrote, and I wrote back, and then he wrote me. And we went back and forth writing letters. And every letter he wrote, he would say the same thing. Prison is horrible. I'm never going to go back here. I'm never going to do or sell drugs. I got put in the hole, which is solitary confinement, for X days for doing something wrong. I'm never coming back. And please, Mark, send me some Little Debbie's cupcakes. So that's what I do. I'd write back and I'd send them Little Debbie's cupcakes. And this went on for a few years. And finally, he got out and we got together. And we always got together at his request at the same place. Ray's Famous Pizza on 48th Street and 8th Avenue. That's always where he wanted to be. And I'd buy him pizza, and we'd, maybe we'd go to the movie, and he'd always swear, I am never going back to prison again. But he always did. Within a year or two at the max, Tony would get rearrested and sent back to jail, and it was always for drugs, dealing or using drugs. This went on for a good 15 years, in jail, out of jail, in jail, out of jail, in jail, out of jail. Finally, by like the mid-1990s, he stopped going to jail. But I knew he was still using drugs. Maybe he wasn't dealing drugs, but I knew he was still using drugs. Because every time we would make a plan to visit, to meet, it would always be at uh, Ray's Famous on 48th Street, I would say half the time, he wouldn't show. Half the time, I'd be sitting there in Ray's, usually with my son, Aiden, who was only like 10 or 11 at the time. After driving to Manhattan, it's about a one-hour drive, fighting traffic, looking for a parking spot. Finally getting there, I'd be sitting there, and he wouldn't show. I got to the point where I would call him on his phone and say, I'm leaving my house now. Are you definitely going to be there? And he'd say, sure, and he wouldn't show. And I knew each time what had happened, that somebody had offered him drugs, and that's what he had done. He had used the drugs and left me stranded. And each time this happened, frankly, my reaction would be like, I'm frigging done. This is just ridiculous. But a few months would go by, he'd call me, he'd ask to get together, I'd take the bait, and, and actually when he would show, we would actually have fun you know, we would have a good time. I enjoyed being around him. And one time, I remember, we had pizza, and then we went and saw the movie Stargate. Saw it in a big Times Square theater. And as we left the theater, I walked him to the subway, and I remember he said to me, wow, this is the first time in years that I've had fun without getting high. And it was striking to me to hear him say this, you know, that the idea of enjoying yourself 
without drugs was like a novelty to Tony. One day in the fall of 1999, this is 18 years after we had first met at Covenant House, Tony called me and said, what are you doing next Thursday night? And I said, yeah, I'm free. You know, I'll, I'll see you, you know, whatever. At, at 6 p.m., we'll meet at Ray's Famous, right? And he said, no, 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 no. He said, let's meet at a different place. I'm going to give you an address. I forget what it was, but it wasn't anywhere near Ray's. It was up in Harlem. I think it was like Lenox and 145th. He said, meet me there. And I said, what are, we, what are you doing there? He goes, just meet me there. I'll explain when you get there. So I drove there. Aiden was with me. He was 13 by now. And on the corner was a church. And Tony was outside of the church. And I said, what are we doing here? And he said, come on, we're going inside. We're going in the basement. He said, it's a uh, 12-step meeting. It's an Arconics Anonymous meeting. And uh, I've been clean off of drugs for a year. I've been going to NA. And today's my anniversary. And I wanted you to be there. So we went into the basement. There are about 100 people down there. And I've been to AA and A meetings before, and they started just like any other 12-step meeting with their various rituals. And at the end, they have the anniversaries. And they give out pins, and people give speeches. And so different people got up, 10 years, 8 years, 2 years, whatever it was, and then it was Tony's turn. And uh, he thanked his sponsor. He thanked all the various people who had helped him to get off of drugs and maintain his sobriety. And then finally he said, you know, when you're dealing drugs, you always think your drug dealer friends are going to be the ones who are there for you. But when you get arrested and you get locked up in prison, they all leave you. They all forget about you. You never hear from them again. But there's one person who was always there for me. One person who never left me. One person who sent me Little Debbie's cupcakes when I was in prison. And he pointed at me, and he said, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for that man there, Mark Redman. There's a Japanese movie that I like a lot called Afterlife. And the plot of Afterlife is that after you die, there is an afterlife. But you're only allowed to bring one memory with you into the afterlife. All the other memories from your life are going to be scrubbed clean. You're only allowed to bring one. So you've got to pick that one memory. And it can't be something typical like the birth of your first child or your wedding day or when you first met your spouse. It's got to be something unique and something different and something specific to you. And I often think if I was forced to make that choice to to select one memory to bring with me into the afterlife, it may very well be the memory of being in that church basement with my son and listening to Tony say that about me. Thank you for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Liam Redman. This is Mark Redman. So shines a good deed.